Just as kind of a warm-up, I brought a picture to show you guys about something that we talked about last week, um, and really something that we've been talking about throughout the entire study of Isaiah. Um, you, you recall that I've been saying that Isaiah is talking about a new exodus, a new way out, or a new exit for God's people as he delivers them out of a spiritual Egypt into... Um, this this way of walking with him, which is in some sense a return to Eden because it's where you walk with God, but in another sense it's a new place entirely because now um, they're, they're growing up, right, in their walk with him. I came across this picture this week and it um, took me about two days to recover. <laughs> now this may be uh, old news to you guys, but it's new to me. So this is the this is the formation of the tribes as they journey through the desert in their in the wilderness. So they're set up in a particular order. That's right. All right, and this order is laid out, and I want to say it's either Numbers or Deuteronomy where it describes the layout of the order in which the tribes go, and it, it does it by directions. So you have like if you look at if you're like in the center, which is the holy place, and the cloud is over the holy place, right? And then you've got certain tribes to the north, certain tribes to the south, east and west. And so what you end up with is literally a cross going through the wilderness. So I can pass this around if you want to see. But this is exactly the kind of stuff that I've been talking about, right? The, the journey of God's people... It's literally a cross. There you go. This stuff is not arbitrary. This is this is exactly the kind of thing that Isaiah is talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to finish up chapter forty-two today. At least that's a plan. We've been trying to finish it for the past, like, three weeks. We'll see if we actually do it. All right, I'm going to start in verse 18. And for this first chunk, I'm going to read 18, 18 through 20. Listen, you deaf. Lift up your eyes to see you blind. Who is blind except my servants, and deaf except those who rule over them? And the servants of God have become blind. You have often looked and not kept watch. Your ears are opened and you have not listened. So obviously this is a kind of rebuke. God is rebuking his people for uh, not paying attention. Which, as we've said, that's what worship is, right? Worship is attention. So their inability to see and hear him is, is something that he has to call out. 
it so happens that you become what you pay attention to. So as you pay attention to these uh, false gods, these images of wood and stone, you end up as senseless as they are. Um, you become shaped into the image of what you pay attention to, what you worship. Um, now, we worship uh, a God who uh, made himself incarnate. And so, our God brings humanity into himself, right? So and following Christ, we become a true human being. We become more human. We become more human, which is what we so desperately need in our culture today. That is the number one question of our time, is what does it mean to be human? Well, the answer is found in walking with God. It is in walking with God that you become more and more human. Any thoughts on that before we move on? You hear this a lot in the New Testament. When Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. They can't, they're not, they can't hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. Something Christ says over and over and over. Multiple times. And he also yeah. says that there's God in some ways so it's a it's a it's a, a fact of nature that if you're paying attention to one thing you're blind to the other thing so like I'm looking at you right now that means they're all blurry I can't I'm, I'm folk my focus is on you right now and so, in a sense, I, I'm blind to Nick at this moment because I'm looking at you. And now I can, I can invert that by looking at Nick, and now I'm blind to David. Um, so, this is just how reality works, that you can only pay attention to one thing at a time, right? So, there's that old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and the things of this world will go strangely dim, right? That's what it's talking about. Um, there's this sort of... Um, there's this thing throughout Scripture where blindness is not always a bad thing. Just like the strange woman is not always a bad thing. It's at, at first, it's a thing of danger in Proverbs, but then Christ pursues the foreign woman. Right? So there's a positive side to the symbolism. This is true of blindness as well. Recall they were blind in the garden. Yeah? They were blind in the garden. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Blind in the garden, evil. Yeah. Say what? What do you mean? Uh, their eyes were opened after they ate the fruit. They were blind to sin. They were blind to sin. Right. So there's a kind of blindness that's a good thing. The fathers and the, the desert ascetics talk a lot about being dispassionate. And it, what they mean by that is uh, being so attuned to their quote-unquote spiritual senses that uh, the things of this world grow strangely dim. That their, uh, their, as they would put it, their natural senses are lessened. Right? That's a kind of blindness. That's a kind of deafness. 
you can only pay attention to one thing at a time. And Christ talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. You can only serve one master or the other. You can't serve both. It's not logistically possible. So, if you're looking at one thing, you're going to be blind to the other. And at this point, I would like to return us to chapter 33, picking up in verse 14. And I'm just going to read this just to make this point about how you're always seeing and blind at the same time. It's just, what are you blind to and what are you seeing? All right, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. And here's the question. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? What's fire in scripture? There we go. God's presence. He who walks righteously. This is the answer. Who can stand being in God's presence? Here's the answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He who cuts out his own eye can stand being in God's presence. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. This is a hard teaching for those of us today in a materialistic culture where everything that happens with the body and with nature is always ever positive. So it's hard for us to talk about things of nature like the senses uh, being a negative motif or like um, a stand-in for something bad. It's not saying that the body is evil. It's not saying in some sort of Gnostic way that we need to not have bodies or that, we, that um, in the kingdom of God we don't have a sense of smell. It's not saying anything like that. What it is saying is that you can only pay attention to one thing at a time. Right? You have to seek first the kingdom of God and then all of these other lower things, and they are lower things, will be added. So... Talk to me. That sheds light on, on uh, mutilation uh, passages in the Gospels. You know, better to cut out your right eye. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's you know if it's if you're not focusing on the right thing, mm-hmm. it's better to just be blind. Uh, you know, and again, it's not not a physical thing. You know, he's speaking spiritually. Yeah. You also got this uh, confusing thing at the end of John uh, chapter nine, after he has healed the, the man born blind. Uh, yeah. The Pharisees ask, "Are we blind also?" And he tells them, "If you're blind, you would have no sin." Wow. But you say yeah. you see, therefore your sin remains. Yeah. So it's all a matter of, of focus. Yes. Isn't there a lie in Isaiah that says, "Who is blind like my servant?" I believe that's coming up later in 43. I believe. Yeah. I think we're actually going to we're going to hit that today, hopefully. Oh, okay. So, yeah. All right. Um, you know, the play Oedipus, my favorite play of all time, you know, it, it is about blindness. Because you have the blind prophet who's able to see. Although he's blind physically, he can see exactly what's going on prophetically. Well, that's an, that's an archetype throughout... Yes. All kinds of mythologies and stories. Usually the prophet has, has a missing eye. Yeah. Or, or a white eye, usually. Yeah. Here is, here is uh, 
Oedipus, though, who can see, but he's blind. Yeah. And ultimately, he blinds himself by blinding himself before he's able to really begin to see and understand what's going on in his real life. So it's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. You see that in modern stories as well. Mm -hmm. Village is a very blatant example of that, which is now an old movie. <laughs> a lot of people may have not even heard of it, but uh, a blind girl in, in this village understands what's going on better than the people who can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a common, a common thing. It's a motif. Yeah. yeah. Well, the 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 point that I want to, you know, that I, that I want to um, discuss with y'all regarding this is that being blind and being seen is a is a state that we're constantly in. We're always blind to something. We're always seeing something. Right, and so the question is, what are you going to pay attention to? When it talks, I mean, bl blindness and seeing is a very important symbol throughout Scripture. It's there all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and it's and it's all the way forwards to Revelation when you get to the beatific vision and seeing Christ in glory. Right, so this is a very common thing in Scripture, and um, you know, it's interesting that what you brought out yeah. the Garden that they were. They were, their eyes were open, and you know, usually I think of it as being a good thing. Like, yeah. Wow, my eyes were open to yeah. the truth. You know, and indeed, their eyes were open to the truth, but it wasn't, wasn't so happy. They were open to too much at once. You know, if you're in a dark room mm -hmm. and you turn a light on, so and it's so, it's 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 overwhelming, right? That you have yeah. to, with light, you have to grow accustomed to it, so right? They, they hid themselves. Right, right, because, yeah, yeah. And this is how the fathers talked about it, too. They talked about the tree of wisdom as something to grow into, and their grasping it too quickly was the problem, right? So I'm not, I'm not making this stuff out of thin air. This is how the fathers talk about it. Not a good idea to stare at the sun. Exactly, exactly. That's too much light. There can be too much light, yeah. And in fact, too much light is worse than too much darkness, because if you have too much light, you, you never see again. It's, yeah. It's it's there's a danger in either extreme, right? And so, um, so when God is leading His people through the wilderness, He doesn't give them too much of either extreme. In the darkness, He's a point of light for them. In the in the daytime, He's a point of darkness for them. Balance. Balance. Yeah. It's like the perfect balance. <laughs> You know that's what the yin and yang is, right? It's a black dot in a white space and a white dot in a black space. Anyway. Um, yeah, it's that, that verse is down in 42, uh, 19, who is blind to my servant there. Is that the one you were talking that's about? That's what I was talking about. The, I'll just say this real quick and then we'll move on on the subject of uh, eyes and blindness. The Hebrew word for eye, Walton, you'll appreciate this. The Hebrew word for eye is um, literally spring of water. And so what happens when they take the fruit and they eat it, the spring bursts open and the water goes everywhere. right? And so you have these verses in Proverbs where it talks about 
don't let your fountain overflow out into the streets. So um, what was sort of contained and safe, if it's, ex- you know, if it's exposed to too much of the world, it's just, it's a, it's a chaotic waste is what it is. So that's, that's how it describes the Garden of Eden story. All right. The Lord God planned that he should be justified and that he should magnify praise. And I looked and the people were spoiled and plundered for there was a snare in their secret chambers everywhere and in their houses together. Wherever they hid themselves, they became loot and there was no one to rescue the prey and there was no one who says give it back. Who is among you who gives heed to these things? Listen to what is coming by which he gave Jacob and Israel as plunder to those who captured him. Was it not God against whom they sinned and were unwilling to walk in his ways or to listen to his law? And he brought his wrathful anger upon them and war prevailed over them and those who burned them to ashes all around and not one of them knew or took it to heart. I don't have a whole lot to say about this section um, other than something that I've said several other times in our study of Isaiah, which is that oftentimes the judgment of God is just letting the natural consequence of our sin play out. So if you're an alcoholic, what is God's judgment on you? What is your punishment in this life? It's, it's, uh, it's your family getting killed in a car wreck. That's, that's the judgment. Um, well, just your wasted life. Yes, yes. Family loss, job, a career, you know, destroyed, reputation. Ruined. Yeah, yeah. So we see all throughout the Old Testament, it says God did this because the people did this. And some of the judgments seem pretty harsh. But more often than not, it's just the natural playing out of him saying, okay, this is what you want. You can have it. Everything has consequences to it. It's the law of sowing and reaping that you see all throughout Proverbs. And, and that is what Proverbs is about. It's about saying, look, this is the, these are the, the laws of reality. And if you do this, this will happen to you. And if you do this, this will happen to you. It's not saying even necessarily that this is how it should be. It's just saying this is how it is. So, um, anything about that before we move on? Yeah, the, the natural consequences of life. Yep. So the wind, you reap the world, You know, in our churches, we could make an amazing game. Sunday school or wherever, or preaching or whatever, we can spend a year or so and look at Proverbs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That would be very helpful. There are times where God steps in sort of to, uh, to make a point. And one of those times is because I've, I, I keep thinking about the story of the Exodus as we're going through Isaiah. So I, I think one of those times is the plagues of Egypt. You know, God, that's not necessarily a natural consequence that's God stepping in and and doing something but but he's doing something in particular Mm -hmm. while doing that 
he is he is um, he is dramatically undoing creation. It's an anti-Genesis one, is what the plagues of Egypt is. It's a systematic undoing of the world of Egypt and a and a, a reducing of that nation to chaos. So. Um, Anything else on chapter 42 before we start the next chapter? It's worth pointing out again that these chapter numbers are a little arbitrary. This is all still one scroll. So what follows is just a continuation of the same train of thought. And now this is what the Lord God who made you, Jacob, and who formed you, Israel, says. Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Even if you pass through water, I am with you. Does that bring any particular story to mind? Yeah. Passing through water. And rivers will not overwhelm you. Even if you pass through fire, you will not be burned up. The flame will not burn you up. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who saves you. I've given Egypt as your ransom, and Ethiopia and Seba on your behalf. Is that This is the new Exodus, y'all. Uh, any thoughts on these, this uh, triad of verses? I'd like to know more about the last part of the verse, about yeah. Egypt, Um, well, there's, there are sort of two ways of putting it. And, you know, I, I sort of think about the great inversion all the time as I'm reading this stuff. So on one level, you know, it means something in maybe a historical sense. But then there's another meaning under the surface that's almost opposite. So in... The Exodus story, um, God does give away Egypt to have Israel. He does. He gives it up to destruction in order to have his people. Now, Egypt and Ethiopia and Seba are all sort of the same thing. It's northeastern Africa, right? And so the kingdom of Cush, which existed at this time, we just read earlier about how the Assyrians were attacking Cush. Cush had come all the way up into Egypt at this point. So these are all just different words for the same thing. At this time in history, God is making a particular point that, um, yeah, I, I, he's saying, I give Africa for you. Yeah, I was thinking the yeah. early church, part of it started in Alexandria. Yeah, that's where, I'm, that's where I'm headed. Yeah, that's where I'm headed. Um, yeah. All right, so on one level, on a sort of historical level. I mean, he gives he gives Africa over to destruction in order to get his people. He surgically removes Israel from from inside Egypt. Um, and Egypt survives the surgery, but just barely. Now, Africa has a very interesting role in the story of what God does in, in this sort of like global drama. Africa shows up 
in very interesting places throughout the story. Um, one of the first interesting places that Africa shows up is uh, is the the one of Moses' wives was Ethiopian. Do y'all know this story? The Ethiopian? No. Different one. Yeah, so Zipporah was a Midianite. That's true. He had an Ethiopian wife from uh, back in his Egyptian days. And I think uh, he took her with him uh, back on the Exodus. He, he brought her out with the people. Now, it mentions her one time in Scripture. And that is when she... Um, is sort of uh, talked uh, down to or uh, uh, made fun of. It doesn't exactly say what's said, but it says that Miriam uh, said something not good about her. And it, it's specifically about her being Ethiopian. Um, now, there are lots of different um, moments in the early, oh, the early days of Israel's life as a nation where God says, I want you to be separate from the nations. I want you to be my own people and not like these other people. But that's not a surface skin level thing. And we know that because um, lots of Egyptians and lots of other slaves leave with the Israelites. Um, God is, even even back then, he's doing something different other than just what's on the surface in this sort of skin-level way. So she says something maybe a little racist about Moses' wife, and God has a pretty dark sense of humor. So what he does is he gives her an excess of whiteness. Yeah. Leprosy is a, is a disease of purity. Remember what I said? You can have too much light? You can have too much... Darkness or light. He gives her leprosy. That's God standing up for Moses' wife. So, almost every time Africa shows up in the story of what God is doing on this sort of global stage, Africa is almost always an image of God's mercy. It's, on the, it's not a coincidence that it's on the right hand of the map. Now, we have to return to the way the maps worked back then, where east was, was up. And I showed you lots of examples of ancient maps where east is up. But when you look at maps the way the ancients saw them, what you see is that Africa is on the right hand of the map. Well, the right hand of God is always, that's the hand of mercy. This stuff is not arbitrary. So, all that to say, returning to this verse, what is it saying about I give... Egypt as your ransom. When you come to Christ, Africa is, is Christ's prize. Africa is a symbol of, of the people of God. It's a people of mercy. Who they were this they were the strange people, but they're they're Christ's bride. And from the beginning, as you said, the church the church really came out of North Africa. Um, the idea of the Logos came out of Alexandria. This is just how it unfolded in history. That Africa was really the birthplace of Gentile Christianity. 
and there are plenty of books about this. Yes. I was going to mention these two yes. books by Thomas Oden, who has passed away now, but he was really a fan and a student of all, all this history and Alexandria and so forth. And he goes to great pains to show that uh, a lot of, of the early church development and really early church theology came out of North Africa. It didn't come out of Europe. Right. Augustine lived in Carthage, I mean, or Oh, yeah. I mean, that's all that. Oh, we can go that's down the list. Africa. Yeah, Tertullian, yes. the person who invented the word Trinity. They lived in Africa. Yes, <laughs> yes. So all of this goes up to Europe, and go from Europe down, it goes from North Africa up. Yeah. Northern Europe. The people of Africa came from Ham, who sinned against his father Noah. And a lot of a lot of people claim that Ham was cursed, but he wasn't. He no, was not. Canaan. No, his, his son Canaan was Canaan. cursed. Yeah. Uh, so Ham, the yeah. people of Ham, are seeing God's mercy, but it was the people of Canaan that Israel was supposed to separate itself from. True. Yeah. So uh, does it does that sort of answer your question? Yes. The the when when God says here, I give Egypt as your as your ransom prize, right? We can take this Christologically or mystically, and we can see that this is how it unfolded. This is exactly how it unfolded. The church blew up out of Africa. So and it it continues that way to this day. The church is thriving in Africa. I have seen it with my own eyes. Yeah. So, you know, Oak uh, yeah. claims or has seen uh, in Libya, which is, I guess, 99.9% Muslim, yeah. that the, out in the desert, they have uncovered huge Christian cathedrals out there. Yes. And just it was the early church. Yes. You know? Yeah, we, we think of Christianity as the, as a, the European thing, and it's, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. You know, the Gospel of Mark was written for Africa. You know, it, that's... Each of the Gospels corresponds to a different direction on the map, right? So the Gospel goes out to these different directions. So the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel for for Africa. Well, I know the Celtic, you know, the Celtic Christians trace their origin right back to Egypt. To oh, the yeah. Church fathers Egypt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, a, that's an impact on Scotland, Ireland. Yeah. You know, no, the Celts actually preserved a lot of Egyptian documents. Exactly. A lot of the Egyptian history was actually preserved by the Celts, and it's recorded in Gaelic. This is, yeah. You know, where you were in Ethiopia, I don't go over there for a while. Yeah. Uh, I can't explain it. There's still some kind of debate between the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and the bishop in Alexandria, and I, I don't have it on straight, but it's like who takes their orders from who? I mean, are they mm-hmm. still you know, part of that patriarchate, or do they have another patriarch? So I don't remember what the whole debate was, but it's some kind of political problem. But there's a relation with Alexandria there. The the world works in mysterious ways over there. <laughs> so you know what. The, 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 our our notions of uh, you know systematic order tend to fall away on that side of the on that side of the map. So, yeah, I mean to this day the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is not is not officially recognized by Eastern Orthodoxy. They don't they don't claim the Ethiopian Church as part of what they're about. 
the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is in some ways doing their own thing. They're just outside the pale. They've got the they've got um, the most ex- extensive canon of scripture that you will find on the planet. Um, oh, they. Um, so many books. Oh yeah, um, uh, the writings of Clement. Oh. Are considered scripture. Um, several others. Okay. Uh, I, they, I think they, I believe they uh, have the Book of Enoch in their scriptures. Um, yeah, the world is wild over there. It's a yeah. It's like um, it's like something that you read about in the Book of Acts. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We have a lot of ground to cover. Since you have become honored before me, you have been glorified, and I have loved you, and I will give people for you and rulers for your head. Do not be frightened, for I am with you. I will lead your seed from the east, and I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, bring them, and to the south, do not hinder them. Lead my sons from a far land and my daughters from the ends of the earth, all who call upon my name. For by my glory I have prepared him and formed him and made him. Um, This just popped into my head real quick. I'll just say this in passing. Isaiah 19. um, I'm going back to to the Egypt thing. Uh, Isaiah 19.25 this sums up most of the book of Isaiah in this one verse Um, blessed be my people and who are his people Egypt Egypt. and Assyria the work of my hands and Israel my inheritance alright there we go alright the glory of God we are created for God's glory. What did we say about glory last week? We talked a good bit about glory. The crucifixion, the crucifixion, or the work of the cross. Yeah, Christ said throughout the Gospels what his glory was. He told the apostles about it over and over. They didn't understand it. Who can blame them? But he said what his glory is. What's his hour of glory? It's when he is lifted up on the cross, displayed for the whole world. That's Christ's glory. So, when you get all the way to Revelation, and it's talking about the, you know, the, the, the beatific vision, where you see God in glory, and the earth is rolled away like a scroll, and it's, it's finally, you know, God is your people, and, and you are. How does how does he put it? They will be my people, and I will be their God. It's what we've been waiting for this whole time. Like we finally get there. And what does it say God looks like? And what do we sing about him? Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And the the one who sits on the throne looks like a Lamb who was slain. So that's the glory of God. So, well, so, so it's like I, yeah. I somehow discovered this and just trying to understand creativity as far as art is concerned. And I used ask students and say, you know, what, what is God's greatest creation as an artist? 
And everybody said, well, it's mankind. It's not mankind. It's redeemed mankind. And as an artist, it cost the artist everything. He had to, he had to give everything in order to accomplish that redemption. It cost him it cost him his life, it cost him everything. You know? And so, as far as art is concerned, you know, I would always apply that. You know, if you really want to be a good artist, you've got to sell it out, man. You know, you've got to give everything to it. You can't hold anything back. And, uh, and that's, that's the way, that's the, the, you know, in order to have us redeemed, what was the price that was paid? And then we watch Babette's Feast. You know how what what did Babette pay for that meal? Everything. That's a good movie. Highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Babette's Feast. It was made in the '70s. It's a Danish foreign film. Um, it's it's very long, but it's worth every second. One Academy Award for best yeah. European film. All right. So, um, yeah. The cross is the moment of creation. That's where God makes everything. Everything comes out of the cross. Um, the church. The, the yeah, right. It goes backwards and forwards. Um, but you see this even in the even in the narrative of the crucifixion story. The days of creation are all present. It's all there. I've I've not to advertise that booklet out there, but I, I write extensively about this in that booklet out there in the hallway. That the days of creation are a they're a liturgical setup for the crucifixion. So um, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We are Christ's body created for the cross. And I have brought out a blind people, and their eyes will be as if they are blind, and deaf even though they have ears. This is a spiritual blindness and a spiritual deafness. All the nations have been gathered together and rulers will be gathered from among them. Who will announce these things or who will announce the things to you from the beginning? Let them bring their witnesses, let them be vindicated, and let them hear and speak truthfully. Be witnesses to me and I am a witness, says the Lord God, and the child whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Before me there is no other God and there will be no one with me. I am God, and there is no one apart from me who saves. I have declared, and I have saved. I have reproached, and there was no other among us. You are my witnesses. I am the Lord God, even from the beginning. There is no one who rescues out of my hands. I act, and who will turn it back? Any thoughts on that that section? Well, the action of the cross I mean, can, cannot be reversed. 
as you've been saying, I mean, God is the Savior, and there's no other. Mm -hmm. Everything begins to be revealed little by little in yeah. the Old Testament, and it goes on finally in the cross, you know, and the resurrection. Yeah, the, the longer that I walk with God, the more I'm seeing those as the same thing, the cross and the resurrection. You know, I, I sort of thought of them as two different events, but, you know, Christ in his resurrected body has nail marks. So what does that mean? Well, it, it means that in some sense, even in his resurrected state, the crucifixion is still there, right? Now, theologically, of course, we know this to be the case, but... In my head, I was sort of th seeing them as two separate things, and my 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 imagination is sort of changing in that way. Well, that's what the Puritans said, you know, that Christ is pleading his wounds on our behalf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the Catholics have this entirely right mm -hmm. that that the cross is the eternal moment. You know, that this, yeah, mm -hmm. um, they write a lot about this. Um, so verse twelve is kind of a strange verse in that. It, it takes on a couple different forms depending on uh, which tradition of text you're reading. There's an interesting one um, that's not in this Bible, but it's another form of the Septuagint that says, this is God talking about his people sort of condemning idolatry. And he says, I denounced foreign gods so that there were none among you. Does that make sense? He's separating his people out and he's saying what's happening with the rest of the world with all this pagan stuff, what I'm doing is different. These are my people and there were, there were no foreign gods among you. Um, I know history almost trying to say that we evolved as people away from multiple gods so finally we get to the point where we narrow it down to just one. Like something we figured out. <laughs> something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I don't know how much to say about this. Well, I think as we've been going on, and that, uh, I mean, we see Christ in the Old Testament. I mean, you know, we do. But in thinking about Israel in the Old Testament, really a big part of their evangelistic task was to reveal monotheism to the world because of all these hundreds of thousands of gods out there in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk a lot about this next week, and I think I'll save my thoughts on idolatry for next week. Okay. Because I don't think I can do it in 15 minutes. <laughs> just realistically. I'll do one thing. I, I will do one thing. I will read a verse from Deuteronomy 32. And this will be sort of a... It's like planting a seed for next week. We're going to talk about next week idolatry, the uh, gods of the pagan world. We're going to talk about the serpent on the pole. We're going to cover a lot of interesting ground next week. But here's what Scripture says. 
when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. So he, when he decided where the nations are going to go, when he de- Deuteronomy 32.8, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is allotted heritage. So, who are the sons of God? What does that mean? We'll talk about that next week. All right. Um, just, just to, uh, uh, I don't know, are you, are you still going to dwell on this passage? Are you this on? group of verses? Yeah. That's all I have, so go ahead. Well, just to the point of uh, the end there, verse 13, um, there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work who can reverse it. There's a great verse in Nahum 1.6. Um, who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Well, who can stand before the fury of God? Only God himself. Yes. Christ stood in the face of the fury of God. So when he asked in Isaiah, who can deliver for me? Well, only me, myself. Yeah, that's the riddle. Who is the servant of God? That's sort of the riddle throughout the book. Um, Did you notice... um, Did you notice the child of promise mentioned in this section? Did you hear me read that? It wasn't in your translations. No, I'm back in Isaiah. Which verse was that? Oh, 10, verse 10. Did you did you hear me say the child whom I have chosen? No. You hear it says servant, servant whom I have chosen. Yeah. Very interesting, huh? I am a witness, says the Lord God, and the child whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Jesus said, you sing me, you sing the Father. Yeah, there you go. This is what the Lord God who redeems you, the Holy One of Israel, says. For your sake, I will send to Babylon, and I will awaken all the refugees, and the Chaldeans will be bound in ships. So, um, don't worry. What's about to happen to you is going to happen to them too. I'm the Lord God, your Holy One, who the one who brought Israel to light as your king. This is what the Lord says who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty water who leads out chariots and horse in a mighty multitude but they have gone to sleep and they will not rise Pharaoh thought he was uh, the one doing the pursuing that he was pursuing Israel in order to catch them no God was leading him they have gone to sleep and they will not rise they're extinguished like a quenched flax all right, so God promises that Babylon will be made captive. Um, I think it's, it's right to think of uh, the world system 
what we use in a shorthand way to say Babylon. Is when, we, when we at this church talk about Babylon, we're talking about the world system at large because that's how Scripture talks about it. Um, it's right to think of that as, as a kind of um, snake that's always eating its own tail, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a cycle of death, fundamentally. Um, so Babylon is, is overthrown and experiences the same thing that it was doing to all these nations. Um, do you remember which nation took out Babylon? Not exactly. The Medes. Yeah, and then the Medes were absorbed into the Persians. Now, uh, this is actually kind of interesting, if I can bore you with just a little bit of history here. Um, the Medes, there's not a whole lot known about them. They didn't value written text a whole lot. They were a very oral culture. It's not that they had no written text, but there's just not a whole lot. Most of what's written about them is secondhand from the Greeks. We get a lot of history about them from sort of the uh, Greek historians. Now, what they say about the Medes is that the Medes were um, fashioned in a way similar to Israel in that they were in an amalgam of tribes with a king at the head. So not unlike Israel during its heyday, but instead of 12 tribes, it was six, six tribes. Um, your numerology bells should be going off right about now. Um, just like Israel, there was a priestly tribe. The priestly tribe was called, and they had each of them had their names, and most of them are very difficult to pronounce. But the sixth tribe, the priestly tribe, was called the Magi. So then, when Persia absorbs the Medes into itself, the class of these pagan priests gets absorbed into it as well. And then they come from the east and encounter Christ. Right, so it's... Well, they recognize the star. Yeah. So they're pouring over the Jewish writings and see that prophecy obeyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, just a little bit of history there. The Medes are... the. This is where the Magi come from. It's from this, this time. Um... We've got a couple minutes left here. Do not call to mind the former things and do not consider the ancient things. Look, I will do new things that will now spring forth and you will perceive them. And I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the waterless place. The beasts of the field will bless me, sirens and the daughters of sparrows, because I provided water in the wilderness and rivers in the waterless place to give my chosen race to drink, my people whom I have preserved, to tell of my magnificent acts. I have not called you now, Jacob, or made you to toil, Israel. You have not brought to me your sheep for your burnt offering or glorified me with your sacrifices, and I have not made you weary with frankincense, and you have not obtained a sacrifice of silver for me. Um, it's interesting that frankincense comes up right after a prophecy about the Medes. Um, you have not obtained a sacrifice of silver for me, and I have not desired the fat of your sacrifices, but you have stood before me in your sins and in your injustices. I am 
I am the one who wipes away your lawless acts because of me and your sins and will not recall them. This is a pretty clear prophecy about the atonement. But you recall these things and let us judge. For as for you, say your lawless acts first that you may be vindicated. Your fathers were first and your rulers acted lawlessly against me. And the rulers have defiled my sacred things. And I gave Jacob over to destruction and Israel as a reproach. So what can we say about this last section? This is a, uh, I think this is yet another call in Israel to stop pretending to be more righteous than you are. He says here, show me your righteousness. Show me. And I'll wipe it clean. Get away from the holiness movement. Yeah. Yeah. So in a short, repent. Yeah, repent. The axe is already laid to the root. Yes. Yes. These warnings are throughout the Old Testament. Um, Do not pretend to be more than what you are. This was the warning to King, what was his name, Ahaz? He was like, ask me, ask me a sign. Admit that you're doubtful and fearful. Ask me to prove myself. And he's like, oh, I would never, I would never test God. I'll do holy for that. It seems like, you know, trying to understand how to discern the voice of God. When you look at Jesus being the voice of God in the New Testament, the thing that blocks out people from being able to hear his voice, ultimately the thing that that blocks it out the most that I've discovered is hypocrisy. And that God, that's, that's the hypocrites, it's impossible for them to hear the voice of God. And that's, uh, and in some ways, that's the thing that sort of, it's the downfall of Christianity over and over and over again, is our hypocrisy. And, uh, so it's like something that God hates it. We are called to wrestle with God and to sort of fight it out with Him. That's what He says here to do. He's like, make your case. Let's argue this out. That's our calling as Christians, to be in such a dynamic relationship with God that it's, that it's, it's combative at times. Right? This, is, this was Moses' relationship with Yahweh. This was David's relationship with God. This is... Jacob's relationship with God. You have all these examples throughout the Old Testament. We are the Israel of God. It's more important than your relationship with your family. Yeah. Yeah. Families, they fight. Families fight. Um, I mean, that's what the name Israel means. He who wrestles with God. That's, mm-hmm. that's who we are. We are the Israel of God. And that, that name was a blessing. It was not a curse. That was, it's a blessing to be in that relationship. Yeah, But it takes humility to do that. And if you're too proud to, too proud to wrestle with God, then there's really not much more that can be said. I mean, we, we have to yeah. be very careful because you can become quite pride, proudful in your humility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's that's part of the um, conundrum 
of our walk. You know, we can go boldly before the throne of Christ in humility. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> Any final thoughts on this section? We'll hit 44 next week and we'll talk about, there's, there's a long uh, rant in this next chapter about idolatry. And um, apart from me, there is no God. This is what Yahweh says. Apart from me, there is no God. That's the key sentence. So we'll talk about that next week. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you.